Welcome to Stories from a Nomadic Citizen, where I share stories about culture, identity, and transitions from the lens of a third culture kid who has lived around the world. This is Grace, and I am recording this from Taipei, Taiwan. This is the first episode that I am not recording from New York, and it makes me really sad to say this, but as of about a week ago, I am no longer living in New York. It was quite an emotional last few weeks packing up my life there, to say the least, especially since it's now become the city where I've lived for the longest period of time, about six and a half years total. Now, I do have exciting adventures ahead of me, which I'll elaborate more on near the end of the episode. But the focus of this episode is on my friend Katie's adventures. We recorded this conversation back in May when I visited her in Connecticut. And that was actually the first trip that I took to visit a friend since COVID hit. We first met back in 2011 when we both studied in Spain. And I wanted to bring her onto the podcast to share her stories of how she's navigated different cultures and transitions, and to show that you don't necessarily need to have parents who are diplomats to experience living in different countries. So here it is. It's really cool that we're doing this in person because yeah, I actually had conversations with two people before this, and they were both over Zoom. And I think I, I did feel like Zoom fatigue after that. I think it would be cool to just start sharing more about your childhood, where you grew up, and then work our way from there. Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Grace, on your podcast. I'm a fan. And I, so I grew up in Connecticut, where we are right now, uh, in a small town in the northwestern part. And it was a pretty rural area. Not too much international going on. Uh, I didn't. I never moved. I think key moments. I was really into sports, uh, running cross country and track, and I was very into music. So I played percussion and oh. drums, and was in the jazz ensemble, percussion ensemble. Did some competitions. Those were the highlights. I didn't know that. I was actually in a jazz band when I was in middle school in Brasilia. No way. Yeah. I played, well, I don't know how much of a jazz band it is because I played the flute. And I don't know if typically jazz bands have someone who plays the flute, but it was, it was a band. They like, do. We had, yeah. Okay. We had someone play trumpet, saxophone, clarinet, trombone, quite a lot. I really enjoyed those classes. It was part of like an elective class in middle school in Brasilia. You've been keeping this from me, Grace. We need to start a band. <laughs> yeah. I have a flute back in Taiwan. I haven't played it in a while, but it wow. was fun. Since you said it's not very international, I'm curious, what motivated you to then, I would say, have quite an international um, trajectory later on, like after high school, going to college, you studied abroad. Was there some time, you know, before you went to college where you went on a trip and you thought, oh my gosh, I, you know, I want to go to more places? Yeah, there was. So as we were talking about uh, earlier today, I took a summer job traveling to Greece and I spent seven weeks there. It was the first time I ever traveled abroad, first time anybody in my family had ever been out of the country. 
Um, my parents still have never been to Europe, and I don't think my brothers have. Oh, no, they did. They went to visit me in England. Um, but, yeah, so that really, going to Greece when I was 18 really opened my eyes to international culture, and I just thought, wow, this is incredible, and I had no idea because I grew up in such a small town. Greece is a pretty good destination for, you know, your first time outside the country. It's a paradise. Like, looking at the Mediterranean Sea, ah, oh, it's just nothing like that. That blue. Yeah. Did you pick up some Greek words? I did. Yeah. Kalimita. What is that? Good night. Okay. Yeah, I went a couple years ago, and I, I think I did try to learn some just, just for fun. I mean, I like to learn at least some words whenever I go to a place that I don't speak the language of. And they appreciate it. Yeah. So when you were in college, I know, of course, you know, we met in Spain through study abroad while we were both in college in different colleges. And I know before that you had gone to Chile to teach English. So I'm curious how you decided on those locations. And before then you had set you know, specific goals for yourself or like what kind of goals you had set doing that just because it's very different say you know going to Greece for four weeks to to help as a nanny mm -hmm. yeah it's a good question I haven't thought about this in a while um so as I said I think that really sparked an interest um in traveling abroad and then I when I got to Mount Holyoke College um I just, it was, it felt very international to me. My roommate was uh, Nepalese, and uh, so I knew I wanted to go abroad again, and I had been learning Spanish since I was in seventh or eighth grade, so I thought that would just make the most sense to go to a Spanish-speaking country, and I remember for the internship in Chile, I was between Argentina and Santiago, um, Buenos Aires and Santiago, and I wasn't sure which one I wanted to do. Um, but I actually just chose Santiago because it, I thought the internship itself, um, was more in line with my background. Um, so that's why I chose Santiago and that was the summer of 2011. And then, yeah, chose Spain that fall. Why did I choose Spain? I think because I had a Spanish teacher who was from Spain and just talked it up all the time. <laughs> and then I contacted a former, no, I contacted a couple of students, I think, who had studied abroad in Spain. And I asked them where should I study abroad? And uh, this one young woman got back to me and said, you have to go to Salamanca. It's the best <laughs> place in the world. <laughs> That's awesome. Actually, I want to go back to Santiago, Chile. Uh, I'm assuming before that you hadn't had experience teaching English? No. So how was that like? And, and what like, kind of training? Did I? I had, I had a semester um, at the university, um, or in college rather, I was a peer tutor. For a college writing center mm -hmm. and so I had taken a semester course on like pedagogy of peer tutoring and mentoring um so I had that but yeah it was gosh going to Chile, Chile was definitely a big culture shock for me um probably bigger than 
Greece. And I, yeah, I felt much more alone there than I did in, in Greece. Um, and yeah, teaching, luckily we were kind of with more advanced students and they were interested more in, um, conversation practice and writing. So I was kind of more skilled in those areas. So that's kind of what I was more able to offer them. Um, not like teaching English basics and grammar and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned feeling like more alone when you were there, which I think, yeah, it's like, it's natural because uh, previously you, well, you were with a family, right? And I'm thinking like, oftentimes maybe like the first time experiencing something it's kind of like a honeymoon um and then maybe the second time doing something similar like going to a different going to a country abroad it like some other harder aspects might have set in uh but I'm wondering like what did you do to help combat that feeling of like aloneness uh and seeing that you were also actively trying to improve your Spanish Hmm. Luckily, I was with another student from my university, not with with, we didn't live with each other, but we both interned. So we got to be pretty close. Um, so that definitely helped. I think the biggest issue is that I was with the host. I stayed with a host mom mm-hmm. and her son, and uh, we just didn't really see eye to eye. And, uh, so I think it's hard when you're living someplace and maybe you're not so excited to come, (laughs) to come home. Um, especially if you're brand new to the culture and, you know, Greece was like a luxury trip and in Santiago, I was living in a high rise downtown in the city, um, during Santiago's winter, lots Mm. of pollution, at least for my standards. And, uh, you know, I like to be active and. Yeah, doors and stuff. So, you know, things like that were difficult. But I, I tried, you know, um, I took trips with my co-intern and tried to see some of Santiago because it's really beautiful, especially outside of the city mm-hmm. and um, in the ocean. So I'd say those things kind of kept me going. And the students who I worked with were awesome. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool to be able to teach English to students who are enthusiastic about learning English. Absolutely. And so many of them really are. And have so many questions about going to university in the States and what is it like? And I've always wanted to go there, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Do you eat fast food every day? (laughs) Actually, I don't know how accurate this is, but I've heard that food in Chile is not that good. Which is, um, I feel like, an anomaly when when I think of food in Latin America. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can only compare it to Brazil, but... Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't... I, I can tell you, unfortunately, I can't remember too many memorable dishes. I think especially compared later on when we went to Spain and... Oh, yeah. The food there... <laughs> I mean, I think we both got lucky with our host families there. Uh, I mean, that was my only experience, having lived with a host family. And so with you, your first experience with the host family like was not too great, but fortunately later on, could you share more about you know, living with your host family in Spain and how that experience was like? 
versus in, in Chile? My host family in Spain was awesome. Uh, I think all of ours were. My, yeah, my host parents were so patient with us learning Spanish and, um, yeah, it really just makes all the difference. I mean, to have such kind host parents, they had been hosts for many, many years before then yeah. and had worked with our program. So, um, they were experienced mm-hmm. and yes, fun. I remember those lunches, those long lunches that we'd have and we'd watch, um, Spanish TV for like an hour and a half. Wait, you'd watch Spanish TV for an hour and a half? Yeah, you know, during lunch. They'd always put the TV on. Oh, interesting. we'd talk about it. It'd be like kind of our conversation piece. Oh. You guys didn't do that? No. Oh. I guess we had enough sort of entertainment ourselves just because they're two kids. Yeah. Right? With your family, was it two parents? Yeah. And no kids. No kids. Okay. So I guess that's a little different because the kids themselves, you know, would talk a lot. I wish I remembered some of the jokes that they told. I don't right now, but sometimes I wouldn't get them and, and they would have to explain. But just a little, like a lot of random tidbits. Uh, and so my my roommate there, as you know, Hannah from our program, she has this special skill, the fact that she was really good at figuring out what was in a puree, like what what was mashed up, like the original food. Because the thing is, one of our hosts, I like to call like my host brother, one of my host brothers, he was allergic to everything. He had a lot of food allergies. So our host mom had to be really careful about what she made for him. And so many of the food was just puree of of, like different vegetables. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe even meat. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really bad when it comes to sometimes like it doesn't even have to be pureed but like maybe a veggie and I don't I don't know what it is but I'll still eat it like I'm just I mean you know I'm I'm pretty flexible with food um you are but (laughs) the funny thing that kind of became this this tradition at lunch whenever we did have puree or soup they'd ask Hannah oh what what is this like made of and she'd, she'd get, like, one spoonful, and she'd, like, she'd say something. And, and our host mom, Maria Jesus, would say, yes, that's exactly... Like, for the most part, she gets them right, or she could taste them, which I was just, like, floored by. I mean, the most important part was that, you know, we ate all her food. That was the most important part. I didn't have to know what they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes but, it's better not to ask. <laughs> but that was, like, a kind of, like, a fun ritual that we did. So, I mean, yeah, again, every host family is different, but I'm glad that, you know, we had really good experiences. Did they teach you how to cook certain Spanish food? Tortilla española. How are, are you able to cook one these days? <sighs> it's been years, Grace. I did. <laughs> I cooked one for my family when I came back from Spain, and I, yeah. like, took a picture and I sent it to them, and they were so That's proud. That's awesome. But I haven't, I haven't done it since. I really should. A lot of onion, a lot of potato... Yeah. Olive oil. Yeah. The good stuff. It's harder than it looks. I think when I was doing it with her, it seemed... I mean, she was helping, of course, and it didn't seem that hard. But when I tried to do it myself, I couldn't get the egg to be so thick. You know, like, it's just... Mm. 
And then I didn't know how to like flip it. Like that's that's, <laughs> that's the, the hardest part. Yeah. But yeah, we also made croquetas. You did? Yeah. I was amazed by my host mom's mm-hmm. cooking skills. Yeah, they're really good. We were well fed. Yeah. I didn't I don't think I had freshman 15 when I went to college, but mm-hmm. I had junior year <laughs> 15. <laughs> From going study to abroad. Spain. Yeah. Study abroad 15. Yeah, study abroad 15. Yeah. It's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back, especially like since that's that's where we met, I'm I'm also just curious. What were the highlights for you? Meeting you. Aw. Of course. <laughs> no. Okay, you're just saying this because you're on my oh, podcast. Okay, apart from meeting Grace. <laughs> um, well, how we met, I mean we met so we met through IES, but I feel like we got to know each other through the hiking that we did. Yeah. Um, did you do Ultimate Frisbee? No. Oh, I, I think I'm confusing you with someone else <laughs> in our program. <laughs> Sorry. Because <laughs> I did Ultimate Frisbee. Really? Yeah. They had that there? Yeah. Where? Salas it was Bajas? by the river. Salas Bajas. No? That this- place with the track? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. That's what it's called. I just remember it was close to the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the hiking. I was saying earlier today how I again was very sort of pleasantly surprised by how well organized they were. The fact that you paid this like registration fee in the beginning, which I don't remember how much it was, but I remember it being very low. Like it, it wasn't expensive, and. They had this bus, they took you to, you know, the start of the hiking trail, and then they also prepared food, and I don't know if you were on this particular hike, but I remember that we got aguardiente, which is some kind of alcohol liquor. Hmm. I don't know that I was. Oh, wait, on the way home? And did we have it on the bus on the way home? No. No, it was, it was actually outside, like, while we were... Okay. While we had stopped during the hike to to have lunch that they had prepared again, it's just like okay. very nice and convenient. It was part of the registration fee that we paid, and I believe that place is known for their aguardiente. I'm not really sure, but looking like back, it? I I'm looking back. I'm a little sort of flabbergasted that they gave us that during a hike. <laughs> you right. know, perfect time when you're dehydrated, <laughs> no food. Uh, I mean, we did have food, but it was like, we were still going to hike for like the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. You're just like an easier group to deal with once you've had. Yeah. Uh, But I just thought that was so funny. Um, It was, I couldn't, I couldn't finish it. I had like one sip. I was like, oh my goodness. Very strong. Yeah. 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 But it's. I don't think I was on that trip. (laughs) Oh, that's too bad. But yeah, I'm really glad we did those hiking trips and I think both of us I would say probably spent more effort trying to branch out of the IES group which like I think I mean it's fine to it was great meeting everyone else in IES but uh, I think it's really easy to just stay in that English speaking American bubble so I think that's also why I became closer to you because I liked, like, I appreciated the fact that you were also trying to improve your Spanish. I mean, everyone was, but I think, again, as part of that Spanish club initiative that IES organized where we 
wore that red bracelet and we which meant oh we could only speak spanish even mm. with one another who you know whose first language is english yeah i think that that was something that i appreciated about you and and just like naturally that that helped us get closer i think so too i also think your spanish is really great <laughs> and i'm sure it still is <laughs> It really helped living with the host family and being in Spain. Uh, I don't know if I told you this before, but back when I was living in Portugal in middle slash high school, I could have opted to take Portuguese classes with native Portuguese speakers. I had, based on, I think, this assessment, I was able to take the class with them. But I chose not to. I said, actually, no, I want to stay in the Portuguese for foreign language speakers class because I, I think, yeah, I was just afraid. I was more comfortable, obviously, in the, the PFL class with other non-native Portuguese speakers. Mm. And so that was something that, yeah, I later regretted because Despite living in Portuguese countries for 10 years of my life, my Portuguese is really not that great. Uh, and so when I went to Spain, I, I really wanted to make that extra effort to not like have that same thing happen, like living in that country, but not really progressing to the level I wanted to. Right. So. And you took classes at the university proper, like the actual... Yeah. University did you? Of Salamanca. I did. I at least took one. Maybe two. Yeah. Do you remember what class? Communications and literature, I think, were the two. How do they compare to the IES classes that you took? Well, our IES classes were pretty small, and I think everybody participated, right? And the Spanish university classes were more lecture-based. So that was the biggest difference. And I noticed a lot of the students... I think some students sometimes skipped class, whereas it was harder to do for IES because we yeah. had attendance. Yeah. Yeah. The second semester that I was there, um, after you'd already left, I took some classes at both USEL, so yeah, Universidad de Salamanca, and also at Pontificia, hmm. uh, the private one. It was very much so lecture heavy um, and not much like sort of group discussions. Definitely. Yeah. I don't think there was any group discussion that I recall. Right. But I had, yeah, I, I'm really glad I did take them, and I met, you know, some interesting professors. And what I did like was that it was also a chance to meet other international students studying at Salamanca, which I think, you know, for perhaps for listeners who don't know, I think it really stands out in Spain for being... Like, in terms of its size, it's a very small town, but it has so many international people, and obviously because it's a university town. And so that was a really great way to meet other, other international students and talk in Spanish with them. Yes. Yeah, it was very international. Yeah, I had a friend from Germany, a friend from Italy, a friend from France, and Spanish was our common language. I mean, some of them spoke English. Yeah, but we tried to stick to Spanish. Yeah. Uh, I remember actually in that same class, the the geography one, I 
think the professor was next to me and I asked him a question. And I, I think at that point I still had like a stronger Brazilian accent in my Spanish. And the, the girl in front of me turned around and she was like, oh, are you from Brazil? Because she was. No way. Yeah. And I, I got really, yeah, I got really excited. Um, as I'm sure you do these days, whenever you find out someone is from Brazil. Of course. Uh, but I think that's a good segue, actually, to Brazil, which, if I remember correctly, it would be your next international stop, right? Let's see. Spain. Yes. Yeah. Next international stop. So you want, do you want to walk us through how you ended up in Curitiba, Brazil? Okay. So how did I end up there? Well, I graduated college. And I started working in D.C., where you were also there at the same time. Yes. Um, and I actually applied to a Fulbright Fellowship as a senior at Mount Holyoke to Spain. And I was, was like, so selected as an alternate, and I was crushed. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't deterred, so I reapplied, and I decided maybe I want to expand my horizons a bit. And I knew that... Pretty sure the Olympics were coming up in Brazil. Mm, yeah. Um, anyways, they had a huge intake of Fulbright scholars for the upcoming year, and I thought, wow, this would be really cool if I was with a group of 100 or more scholars. And so I applied to Brazil for the Fulbright, um, selected Curitiba as one of my top cities, and that's how I ended up there. So many I didn't know about the first part that you had initially applied yeah. to go to Spain. I, I don't know. I like to tell people that because um, I feel like people don't talk enough about their failures. Yeah. So that was the second time around. And I think it also shows that, as you said earlier today, everything works out in the end. It does. <laughs> I'm so glad I got Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. I could probably never would have ever lived there without that. So, mm -hmm. what did you know about Brazil before that? Or like, what were your impressions? And then, how did they change or evolve after you got there? I knew I knew some. So, I had done a Spanish and Latin American studies minor in college, and so I knew a bit about South America. And I was very into music and bossa nova and some Brazilian music. Um, and then I had met a few Brazilians when I was in Chile, and they had really made an impression on me. Uh, <laughs> they were big partiers, <laughs> but they were so friendly and extroverted. And uh, so that was kind of in my mind what Brazili Brazilians would be like. And of course, I knew about the weather, that there's beautiful beaches. And um, so I, I had some sense, but that's certainly no substitute for when you get to a country, especially one as big as Brazil, and, yeah, you just have no idea what it's going to be like. Um, and so how was it like in the beginning? In the very beginning, I had my Airbnb hosts pick me up at the airport in Curitiba, and they were so shocked because I had been messaging them over Airbnb, like, using Google Translate and a dictionary because I didn't know how to speak Portuguese. 
And so my Portuguese was great written. It was like perfect. <laughs> and so my Airbnb host, they were like talking to me in Portuguese as if I knew oh, it. Oh boy. And I, I like had broken, you know, I had my Spanish coming out. Um, so they <laughs> were pretty surprised that I did not know Portuguese. <laughs> um, but then I ended up living with them for the rest of the year and they taught me a lot of Brazilian Portuguese and slang, so that was nice. So yeah, big culture shock right from the start. How was the program itself like in terms Fulbright? of... Yeah. Um, Fulbright was great. Uh, they were a really well-oiled machine for having that many scholars. I got there early, a month early, and a few friends and I went to Carnival before the program started. Um, so after that, we went to Sao Paulo for the orientation, and they had returning Fulbright scholars giving workshops and explaining what the year is going to be like. So it was very organized, and um, it was good that they did that. They had uh, the returning English teachers kind of tell us what to expect. Mm -hmm. Smart. And they had placed them in different cities to be with us. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that is really... It's, it, it is really well organized and yeah. sort of considerate, you know, mm -hmm. of, of the new scholars. Yeah, joining. I mean, they, the program really wants you to succeed, and they yeah. understand that being dropped into a new country where you likely have no experience, um, you need, you know, some support, especially yeah. to be teaching um, every week. So for any listeners who are not from the U.S. or U.S. based, they probably have never heard of Fulbright. Could you just give a little oh. bit of background information about what, like, what, what is a Fulbright Scholar? All right, well, um, the Fulbright Scholarship is a scholarship through the U.S. State Department. It is, so it's a program of the U.S. government, and they have all different types of programs. There, there can be Fulbright Scholars from different countries coming to the U.S., to the U.S., going to different countries, and um, the mission is to promote cross-cultural exchange and foster good relations between the U.S. and other countries. Mm -hmm. So there are two types of grants, like in general, kind of research or teaching. And so I applied for the teaching grant. Mm, okay. And so since you previously had experience teaching, uh, although for a shorter period of time in Chile, how did it compare then later on teaching English in Brazil? Oh, super helpful having that background. I mean, being in Latin America, teaching college-age students, because that's exactly what I ended up doing in Brazil, and that's what I wrote about in my application essays and, and such. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of repurposed, like, things that I did in Chile, and I had more experience now and more yeah. work experience. So, um, yeah, some of the workshops. We helped develop a curriculum for a writing center at the university, it always helps to have some experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I, I guess I want to hear more about your experiences sort of on the ground in Brazil, interacting with people there, and how how maybe if it was easy or a challenge, the fact that you already knew Spanish mm. <laughs> to, to learn Portuguese. Portanol is what I was told <laughs> I spoke. Um, yeah, I mean, the language, to start with that, that was a challenge for sure, but it helped exponentially to live with Brazilians and, you know, patient Brazilians who would teach me. Um, I did enroll in Portuguese classes there, 
oh, okay. with other Fulbright scholars. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much they helped. <laughs> I think that just making friends outside of kind of the Fulbright crew also really helped. I joined a running team there, and so I made lots of friends who were Brazilian. And I think it's such a great way to meet people abroad, even as an adult, by yeah. joining kind of recreational teams, mm-hmm. um, as you've talked about before with your sports. The university I worked at, I had a lot of young colleagues as well who were Brazilian at the university, and they were our age. So that was a nice social network there too. So they would invite us to their houses, you know, for coffee or parties. Mm-hmm. It's a place that I need to go back to because, yeah, as you know, I have very fuzzy memories of my time in Brazil. And, well, at least I'm very glad that whenever we hear Brazilian music or Portuguese, our, both our, our years perk up, essentially, and we can connect on that and our love for Pão Yeah, and your accent is so good. I think accents are easy to pick up when you live there for a long time and, like, perhaps when you're very young, which like, was the case for me. But, mm-hmm. uh yeah, verbs, vocabulary, conjugation, that kind of stuff, pretty much. A lot of it is out the window. Um, but I'm sure for both of us, if we go back there, we'd both like, get by absolutely fine. I think so. So when you were in D.C., you had worked at an, an education tech firm. Uh, where, where did that interest come from I know like a lot of people teach English right but they might not that might not translate into um, a career in education so mm-hmm. what was your drive in in you know choosing that for your master's and also why uh, England well I actually had wanted to study abroad uh, when I was at Mount Holyoke I had wanted to do a semester in Salamanca and then a semester at Oxford Oh, okay. And I got in, it was kind of all planned, but then something fell through, so I just ended up going to Spain. So I kind of always had England in the back of my mind, and people I looked up to at university had also gone to England to get their master's to Oxford or Cambridge, and so I thought, I want to be like them. (laughs) I think it'd be cool to do that, and um, just, as you know, I like living abroad, so why not get my master's abroad? Mm -hmm. And... uh, just makes it all the more interesting. And so when I was in Brazil, I was looking at master's programs and I knew practically that Oxford and Cambridge offered the most funding. Um, At least that's what I thought through different scholarships and things. And I focused on Cambridge because the particular program that I did an MPhil in research and second language education was just so clearly tied to my background. I mean, basically my background told the story of this program. So I had to choose it. Yeah. Um, I just thought it would, yeah, just be a great fit for my interests and um, what I'd done so far in my career. And so, yeah, I remember writing, writing up those essays and, uh, it just felt all pretty natural. And I was so surprised when I got in, <laughs> Uh, but so that's how I ended up mm-hmm. at Cambridge in England. That's awesome. That it all felt really natural. It did. And uh, how was the college 
uh, formal experience like? Because I think that's really unique to Cambridge and Oxford. That's so, it felt so silly putting on robes to go to dinner. I thought, how has this tradition lasted? But I mean, it, it is a tradition. And, you know, folks at Cambridge and probably Oxford too, I mean, they take so much pride in that. And it's, it's part of the fabric of, you know, their history. And um, I think some colleges are getting more lax about it. Some colleges you don't have to. Um, but, you know, it's part of the spirit. Yeah. It's fun. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. No, I'm definitely looking forward to that part. Uh, I mean, you know how much I love Harry Potter, so... Absolutely. Anything with robes, I'm all for it. Well, you are back in the U.S. And in Connecticut, your home state. And you don't have, you know, plans to sort of, okay, the next step abroad. How, how does that feel? To, to sort of just stay put? Well, at first it felt really weird coming back to Connecticut. And uh, yeah, because I hadn't had any roots. I had never bought furniture for myself. I was just so used to living out of a suitcase. And so it was kind of a shock at first. Um, and I kind of had to reckon with the part of me that kind of wanted to settle down a little bit more and the part of me that just wanted to keep traveling. Yeah. And, uh, before I had decided to come here, I had like a job offer in China actually. But, um, you know, I'm fortunate now because I am in a role where it's still very international and, uh, globally focused. And so I kind of feel like that. I definitely feel like that part of me is still, alive and well and I look forward to traveling a lot more in the future yeah I mean I can really relate to that part of you where you want to keep moving but then part of you also wants to settle down and for me I'm not really at that settling down stage even though I you know I do want to still trying to sort of find my home um which which is why I I think when I came into your place I was so again pleasantly surprised by all your very nice furnishings. To end this conversation, I want to ask if you have words of advice um, to those who have never left the country or you know very little experience abroad but are sort of curious and want to explore but don't really know sort of the next step to take. Oh gosh, um, well it's great that they want to and they're interested. Uh, traveling is a privilege yeah and you know I've been so privileged to be able to and frankly lucky um to be able to do so and so I'd say I mean if the opportunity comes up absolutely if you can to take it and you know if you have the ability to go abroad there are also different kind of funding opportunities and outlets that you can look into um, if you do some digging to kind of support you if that's what you're passionate about um so, yeah, now that we're uh, kind of seeing the light after COVID, it, I think it will be nice to hopefully more people will be able to do more traveling and feel comfortable doing that, too. So, yeah. yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. This was great. Yeah, thanks, Grace. I had so much fun catching up with Katie 
And I hope this conversation also inspires you to get out of your comfort zone, whether that means moving to a new unfamiliar place or making some kind of other change that you've been thinking of doing but have been putting off for whatever reason. Speaking of which, I did say that I would elaborate on what my next adventure is. Actually, uh, Katie and I had talked about it a little bit towards the end of our conversation. I will be going to the University of Oxford this fall to pursue an MBA. Uh, And that's why I mentioned earlier that I am looking forward to dressing up in robes or subfusk, as they call it there. Uh, But in all seriousness, it was a process and decision years in the making, actually. And I'm just incredibly grateful and fortunate to be able to take this kind of leap of faith. I'm truly looking forward to sharing my and fellow classmates' journeys later this fall through stories from a nomadic citizen. And aside from the podcast email, which you can find in the episode notes, I have also set up an Instagram account under the handle Nomad Citizen, where you can find some visual elements to the stories that I've shared. Please do send me a DM to share any feedback and questions that you might have, or just drop a quick hello. And if you haven't already, please make sure you follow or subscribe to Stories from a Nomadic Citizen on whichever podcast platform you are using. Now we'll end this episode with Katie playing the Mallet Cat, which is a percussion instrument that I only learned about when I visited her. I love the way it sounds, and I think it ends the episode on a wonderful note, pun intended. What would I like to do? These are all different symbols. Is uh, oh, this is Latin percussion. You know, so you can like make a beat in the background. That is amazing. Yeah, that is so amazing. It's a lot of fun.